Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Joe Silvera, and Joe and his wife, Anat, own a jewelry school in the Bay Area called the Silvera Jewelry School. And they started that after they'd been on the road selling their own jewelry for many years. They're great instructors, and I had a lot of fun talking with Joe about their school and about the kind of jewelry that he likes to make, and he even gives us some tips for soldering. Well, welcome, Joe. I'm glad to have you here. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. It's been a while. I think I, the last time I saw you in person was years ago now. Yes. You were doing Coming Beads, out of Bubbles, the, and Jewels. That's right. <laughs> I came out of the green room at Beads, Bubbles, and Jewels and did my thing. That's right. I loved it. It was all about texturing, creating texture on your the faces of your own hammers, which I really hadn't considered as even being a possibility. It's a great idea. It is a lot of fun. I love modifying tools. And it was really fun for me to do that episode with you and a, and a really good learning experience. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, you're doing tons of videos these days, or maybe video is the wrong word, more of a live class. Yeah, I feel like I'm on screen all the time now. Um, <laughs> so it's a, new, it's a new reality. Um, all of our classes for now have transitioned to online. I think we're going to keep some of it going after we can go back to in-person, whenever that is. Um, but uh, it's a lot of fun. And um, you just constantly, I'm just constantly composing my life on uh, a little one by, you know, eight screen or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I bet it's a lot different than the, what you had in mind when you were going to jewelry school. Yeah, uh, I went to jewelry school. Uh, I started as a fine arts major and um, took a jewelry elective. You know, we had to take electives in craft. And uh, as soon as I was in that room and could hear the sound of the the rings being hammered on on the mandrels and the anvils being uh, used, I, I fell in love. I, I immediately switched from sculpture and and uh, painting to to jewelry, and um, I loved it ever since. That's awesome. I think it's neat that you loved you fell in love with the sound <laughs> in, the, in the workshop. That's cool. So, yeah. is that what kind of drew you to creating a jewelry school of your own? Well, is that vibe was definitely there uh, because I was a student at the school and it, we worked side by side with the graduate students, which was really fun. And um, I was kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is for it, but let's just say I was always in the studio. <laughs> I had my own bench and um, so I'd be working on stuff. And um, my first experience of kind of helping somebody and teaching somebody was was at school because informally, you know, what would usually happen is, uh, the students who were just taking it as an elective would realize in the last two weeks of the semester that they had several projects to finish uh, if they were going to get some kind of grade in this class. And, uh, you know, this guy's walking through, it looks like he knows what he's doing. And so I would get asked a lot of questions. And uh, for some reason, I was happy enough and patient enough to, to help them out, you know. So um, I enjoyed it. Well, I bet you learned a lot helping them too. Yeah. Finding, uh, finding answers to their problems is as much learning for yourself in a way. That is so true. And I feel like as a teacher now, uh, after having done it as an artist for uh, years, you know, doing the shows and the, and a circuit, um, being a teacher, it's like you're recapturing that beginner moment over and over again. You're kind of recapturing your love of the craft and the excitement that you see in them and, and just that yeah, enthusiasm. I mean. Yeah. And you learn tons from your students. You know, they'll ask questions that you just don't think about because you're doing your thing and you do it the way you do it. 
and they'll ask this great question. You're like, hmm, <laughs> you know, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> Let me try it. Right. And it turns into this whole new technique, this whole new thing that you you do now, you know. So. Yeah, I think someone gave me a suggestion once in class. I was teaching with really tiny beads and showing them how to do weaving like at the front of the class. And somebody mm-hmm. said, why don't you could bring in some of that macrame cord and show us really big. And <laughs> that turned my whole class teaching on its head, you know, because yeah. that was awesome. They could totally get it and see what I was doing. And you're right. Sometimes people's suggestions completely change the way you look at things too in your own work. Absolutely. When you were traveling around um, selling your jewelry, were you going to shows and uh, fairs and things like that? Yes. Trying to sell everywhere and anywhere I could, <laughs> just like a normal jeweler and trying to get in because it's mostly jewelers and they, they you know, don't take everybody. Um, and then I was selling it, you know, uh, galleries and, and uh, uh, stores and uh, doing wholesale and retail. Um, I have to say when I when I came to teaching in 2002 and, and that was through my wife and not, we met in 2000 or actually um Oh God, she's going to be listening to this. And I got the date wrong. Um, in 1999, um, uh, we met and then uh, had a little bit of time together before she said, well, let's do something different. Let's start teaching. I've been teaching for a long time, she said. And, and she told me about how she'd been teaching classes uh, in jewelry. And at first I was kind of skeptical and we started teaching together and then she couldn't get me to shut up. And then so, you know, I was teaching ever since. I just, I yeah. felt like I came home. When I, when I, I was got just going to say, you circled back <laughs> around to your, yeah, where you started, right? Yeah. That's cool that you can do it together. So, was it very long before you were um, creating your own space then? Uh, we lived the life of traveling teachers, you know, for a while. We taught uh, at the different um, shows and fairs and um, at different schools around the country. And um, that gets a little old pretty quick, you know, because you're, a lot of times you're bringing all the tools and everything with you for the students as well as yourself uh, to be right. competitive. And so uh, I think the moment that Anat was curled on the floor of the hotel room in a fetal position, just saying, I, I can't pack <laughs> one more time. This is insane. I understand that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we said, okay, well, let's see if we can find a different way to do this. And so we started really looking at the idea of having a school and uh, having our own space. And then it wasn't long after that that we stopped traveling um, because we could make the school uh, a place for people to come together as students and teachers, you know, to develop community uh, about and around jewelry and to bring in all these different teachers. Now, we could bring the teachers in uh, with all these different backgrounds and you know, techniques that they specialize in and bring that to the school and the students and share that information with everybody. It's just, it's just, you know, once we started that, that was it. We knew it was right. Yeah. People can come to you. Yeah. Was it hard to find a space that suited was suited for what you were looking for? Well, we had a mix of spaces to start with. Um, Anat actually uh, had a bead and yarn store for a while in a small town. And oh, so okay. there were, it, Price per foot was affordable, so we had a big space, and so we had like 400 square feet of classroom space. So we started offering classes there, and people started, you know, coming up from the Bay Area. It was about a two-hour drive. Uh, when the economy kind of slumped in 2007, 2008, we came down, came back to the Bay Area in order to kind of get closer to where people were and make it easier for people to take classes because that that part was doing really well. 
And uh, so we, we started in 400 square feet. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And we somehow fit in there uh, six student benches plus a teacher's bench. Um, wow. And, you know, rolling mill and kilns and all that kind of stuff. And uh, everything. So, yeah, you got it. And, you know, small space, you got to be really organized uh, about where stuff is and what right. you're doing. So uh, when we moved and I was searching for an, another space, she's been so integral to this whole thing and, and, and just such a big part in all of her teaching and all of her, what she does for the school. Um, she found this other space for, you know, the same or less as what we were paying for the other one. And it was like a thousand square feet. So it felt enormous next to what we had before. Um, oh, wow. I bet you could really breathe. Yeah. Until now. There. Now, now we're like pushing <laughs> now out. To move. <laughs> That's right. now, now we've got like, there's just stuff everywhere, you know, it's just, <laughs> we, yeah, it's amazing every you fill up whatever space you have. Yeah. That is so true. That is so true. But it's full of fun is what we say. You open a drawer, you ask, do you have that tool? Yes, we do. Because we love tools. So <laughs> we open a drawer yes. and there's that tool. Yeah. That is fun. So, and that's cool not, that you're doing it together. Oh, yeah. I, not every couple can do that. That's been a special part of our story that um, I think within a couple weeks of us uh, finding each other, uh, we weren't apart, I think, for several years until finally um, I took I took a separate business trip or a vacation or something, and um, we've been you know working together ever since. And uh, not every couple can manage that kind of time all the time with each other. We're very lucky. You are lucky. What do you think is your secret to being uh, able to do that? Number one, communication. Right, you just have to very really. Important. Oh my God, you have to know when your things are getting heated and kind of just change your perspective and think, you know, okay, what am I doing? That's really making the other person angry right now. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and then back off a little bit. And then number two is just acknowledge that she's always right. So, and then my life, <laughs> my life is much simpler. That is not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably I'll think, you know, I've got this one. This is, this is me. I'm totally right on this. And then I'll realize, yeah, no, no, I'm not right. All right. Aww. So, <laughs> and then life is, life is good. And then it's all smooth again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Happy wife, happy, uh, happy great. life. Yeah. yeah. Do you separate your um, duties with the sh with your school? You know, do yes. does someone always wear the business manager hat, and someone wears the other hat, or how does that work? We both manage. Uh, we have our areas that we're stronger in. I, I, for some reason, fairly good with math. She doesn't like math, so I end up doing you know accounts and that kind of admin. She does. She's uh, just totally the ambassador for the school. Everybody loves her. Um, so um, she talks to students, takes care of a ton of stuff, um, and you know develops her classes. And um, as I develop my classes, we each have our kind of areas that we teach. We divide up which classes. Um, we have other teachers now who teach for us. So you know we have uh, Arlene Mornick. She does our metal clay classes. Uh, Jen Parnell does a lot of fabrication as well as these really great history classes. Uh, she'll teach like oh, nice. the history of, yeah, it's really fun. She'll teach the history of ancient Egyptian jewelry. And at the same time, you're learning the techniques and you can then practice those techniques from that time. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's great. I think we're so lucky because um, in jewelry making, so much of the history is also tied to interesting cultural 
events or people or, you know, I don't think that all hobbies are necessarily that way. I, that is really true. I think you can tell the history of the world through objects uh, right. of jewelry and ornament. Yeah. That's neat that they can come there and learn. Yeah. It's, it's really cool that they can do that. They're doing that online right now. Uh, they're going to learn uh, Japanese metalworking and uh, oh, wow. learn about, yeah, they're going to learn Japanese uh, alloys, patinas, and uh, of course the history of it. And I mean, hugely influential history of jewelry there that uh, affected us over here in the West uh, starting in the 1800s. So, um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it, that's the fun is, is just thinking of the different aspects. There's so many different parts of jewelry. What can you bring to the students? You know, you're, you're hearing what they're interested in and you're kind of hearing what the teachers are interested in teaching. You're finding what seems like very interesting subjects for people. And um, we say we're doing, uh, not nice, we'll say to each other, we're doing it right when, when we are wanting to take the classes we're offering. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> we want to, we want to get in, leave us a space because we're going to be there, you know. Uh, That's we so learn true. That. Yeah. That's great. Do you have a favorite technique to teach or to learn? Um, I'm known for soldering and I like teaching soldering, but I, I love uh, teaching uh, lost wax um, and wax carving. So oh. for a long time, yeah, it was part of my career for a long time. I was a, a freelance model maker for other people. Oh, I didn't know and that. yeah, my own jewelry, I, I carved and, and made a lot of my pieces as uh, my own components and then fabricated with them. So um, it's so um, sculptural. And, you know, the classes are kind of quiet. People are like carving and everybody's kind of into their little one by one inch space of wax, you know. And um, it's just really fun to teach people about, you know, carving that stuff and then how to cast. It's kind of a revelation when people see it for the first time. My husband's wedding ring is uh, lost wax cast. <laughs> it is huge. <laughs> and we try, you know, <laughs> some people will be like, this ring must weigh like a pound and a half. I mean, not really, but it is really a weighty piece of jewelry and it has um tree roots carved into the sides and so you wow. know it took some space to be able to create that and so yeah. to explain to someone about what lost wax casting is you know once they get it it's like a light bulb goes on in their face you can just see that they're understanding you know you carve this piece you put these pieces together you pour silver into you know it's just going through that process i think it is pretty fascinating even for people who don't who aren't going to try it they just want to appreciate it you know oh yeah as soon as the students start to get an understanding of what it is and how long it's been around you know I, I tell them about you know some of the original kind of castings that were done uh where you've got pit firings that were you know people figured this out four thousand years ago and they were able to put a model in one chamber of kind of a gourd shaped uh, ceramic pot and in the other chamber connected by an open neck, they had the metal and they would, they figured out, okay, put the metal down, put it in a pit, heat it up, you know, the material, it, it may have been beeswax, it may have been leaves, anything that could burn out and uh, form into a model burns out. And they could tell by the color of the fire, you know, that the metal was molten. This is amazing. And then they it could reach amazing. in there. It is. And they could reach in there with a simple tool you know, pull it out, flip it over and gravity cast it in. That is amazing. I think what's amazing too, is that we're still doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it, it's become a refined process, but 
it's still the same. There's a link between that person 4,000 years ago who figured that out. Yes, there's a link from that person to your dentist. (laughs) 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 Because the dental industry did so much to make casting more sophisticated. Um, you know, you look back in between and, and, you know, wax carving and stuff was fairly primitive even still, you know, they, they would make plaster forms first and then put wax over that. Um, you know, dentistry came in, it worked on the machines, it worked on the materials. You know, I'm just saying to everybody out there, next time you're at your dentist, you need to look at that person and say, thank you. Thank you for my wedding ring. <laughs> thank, thank you for all that you've done. <laughs> Not to hand. mention my crown. <laughs> yes. Now put your hands in my mouth and do what you've got to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it is kind of interesting how the, all those different skills and techniques overlap. You know, it's not just for jewelry. Obviously, it's for lots of other things. And That's same right. with soldering. You know, a lot of people, when they first hear about soldering, think that we're talking about using a soldering um, tool. You know, and I say, well, actually, you have a torch. Oh, how do you solder something so tiny with a torch? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're thinking uh, soldering iron, right? And, uh, and low right. temperature. And you're like, nope, I'm doing this at over 1,200 degrees and using like an oxypropane torch or oxyacetylene or just acetylene. I mean, just a variety of gases, right? You can use butane if you're working at home. So many different ways to do it, but you've got to get over. 1200 degrees to get that hard solder to flow. In fact, you know, it's technically hard soldering, right? We should call them, you know, jewelry hard soldering classes, but I joke we'll never fill one because it's got hard in the name. (laughs) You're right. No one teaches easy soldering. Well, actually, everyone teaches easy soldering, but it's actually hard soldering. So it's a little, a little bit of a trick there. That's right. Because hard stands for high. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Mm -hmm. hard, hard solder, medium solder, easy solder. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I fell into it. I mean, it was part of those roots. You know, when Anat and I started teaching, we were teaching a lot in beat stores uh, to people who wanted to make the transition from working with uh, ready-made components to their own components. And uh, usually the number one thing they wanted is, show me how to solder that jump ring shut because I want it to be shut. And uh, people can't lug an oxyacetylene torch home, you know, and, and stick it in their room and work with it. So we started teaching with butane torches, which a lot of people in the industry said, oh, yeah, you can't, you can't solder with butane. And um, I can tell you, actually, recently, I, I have a class uh, because people are working so much at home now. I show them how to cast ingots with a butane torch. And so that was wow. pretty amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, like they're up to like a half an ounce of material and even casting it into an ingot mold, you know, with the butane torch. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I bet uh, they're feeling so satisfied. Oh yeah. It's the best. It's the most freeing thing is to cast an ingot because you realize that's the ultimate reboot. You know, when you've reached the wall with the piece, <laughs> which happened. You're going to melt it down. And it's just going to melt this baby down and we're just going <laughs> to form it out again. We used to joke in the studio, there's two things at the end of every quote unquote failure, right? Failure is the first attempt to learn in learning. Uh, so, uh, either you're going to hammer the hell out of it or you're going to melt it down and then hammer the hell out of it, you know? So, uh, and it's very cathartic to do that. And either way, someone's getting hammered. That's right. That's right. Either way. And all those terms come from the trade, right? Plastered, hammered. Pretty funny. That is funny. 
Hmm. But um, yeah, but it, I think it was also freeing for people to see that even just with a handheld creme brulee torch, they could um, solder. And once they, maybe down the line, once they got into it and they're now going full time, they, you know, we show them here at the school because we're all about home friendly and legal and what can you use at home without, you know, throwing your home insurance into disarray. Uh, so we'd show them, you know, ways to, to use oxypropane at home uh, using oxygen concentrators and disposable propane bottles or very small refillable propane canisters. Um, oh, that's a good bottles. idea. Yeah. So, yeah, it works I think well. A lot I, of have people a, have, I think a lot of people have safety concerns for working at home. As they should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't think you should set down a, a 40 cubic foot but uh, a settling tank in your bedroom and just pop that thing open, you know, uh, you can do it in some areas because rural areas can be more relaxed, you know, in their zoning, but um, you want to kind of minimize how much gas you have in the home. So butane is super safe because it disperses rather than pools, right? You know, if you, if you go for propane or stuff like that, if you're kind of turning on the torch and it's just sitting there pooling up gas on your bench top when you and eventually, light it, it's going to make that fireball. It's going to be really interesting. But with butane, you could do that and it just disperses, disperses, disperses. You finally light it, there's no fireball. So it makes itself as safe as possible. Yeah, that's that makes sense. And it explains why that's the kitchen torch too. That's right. That's you know? the kitchen table torch. Yeah. Okay. Um, I hadn't really yeah. thought about using a propane tank like for the grill. Is that what you're saying? Too when big. You say propane? Yeah, too okay, big. So this too is big. the handheld, like camp kind that you would yeah. attach to, like a camp stove. Yeah, so you could have an oxygen concentrator, which is basically a medical breathing device, and um, those can be come refurbished already, ready to go. Or there's some simple changes to to make that ready to attach a torch to. That'll generate your oxygen almost infinitely. I mean, it has a, a limited number of hours it'll run, but then. Um, you can just have uh, like a plumber's bottle of propane uh, attached to that. Uh, so the, that's connecting to the other line on your torch if you're using like a little Smith torch or something. And that runs okay. for a long time. People think, oh, you know, I'm going to run out of that propane really quickly. But you use very little propane. It's mostly the oxygen that's accelerating your flame. And so you can run, you know, depending on how much you're doing, you can run for months on that little bottle. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So we then for the school, we just changed over because it's just kind of wasteful, right? You know, to run on disposables, especially for a school. So we have concentrators because we want to show that we walk the talk. And um, and then we have kind of boat size propane um, bottles that are like um, they're about one gallon. You know, that's their max. And so oh, okay. they're small. Yeah, they're small. And you can take them and get them refilled, usually at some place like a U-Haul center or something like that. Uh, they'll refill it for you. When you're using these different types of gases in your home, I think your work table also is you have some bricks around it and you've created a a space that is as fire safety friendly as you can. And then can you pretty much make anything you want to? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I've heard people making pretty giant things, even even though they're working at home. So I don't think it can, needs to hold you back. No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, scale is going to be the main driving factor on what kind of space you need, right? You know, if you're doing a lot of bigger stuff, it, it makes sense to have a bricked-in area and like some something like concrete backer board down underneath. You know, 
so it's fairly fireproof. Um, some bricks below where you're working. Um, because you're going to be bringing that flame up a lot. Your flame's going to probably be bigger because you're doing bigger scale. Um, I tell the students that I learned how to solder, like when I feel like it really clicked in, was when I was using a really big natural gas torch and soldering my teapot for the first time. And that was when I, I felt like I understood how the flame interacts, how the flux interacts, and, and you know how everything comes together uh, on a big project like that. Now, if you're doing something smaller, if you're if you're still just doing goldsmith scale, jewelry scale, right? Um, you can just you can just have a small area that's protected on your bench top, or even like one of those stations that hooks onto a GRS mounting plate and kind of hooks in front. But you know everything there is is fireproof. So you've got something below your solder board that's going to keep you from burning the table. Um, you've got your solder pe- uh, board. You've got your bricks that you work with. Um, there's so many different things you can hack to make, like to take sheet metal and, and just create like kind of a little box that you work inside of if you're worried about the flame getting outside of that. But, um, you just play safe with the flame, you know, you just keep it pointed where it belongs and, uh, always be cognizant that you've got that thing on and, uh, what you do with it when it's off. Yeah, that makes good sense. What other kinds of hacks can you recommend for, um, safety or also efficiency or just doing what you want to do with your jewelry sure so another safety thing is you have to remember that you work on a world that has gravity and so eventually something hot is going to fall off the bench and um, hopefully not on you but probably onto the floor so uh, wear an apron right protect yourself not the day to wear shorts uh, just expose even if you want to just wear an apron over that um, uh, so yeah, my wife does a, a not does enameling. And so she has a kiln in her home studio and, um, you know, we've experienced drop. And so, uh, we had rugs for a while, you know, like just an inexpensive rug remnant that you could get. So it's just not hitting your floor. But, you know, when you hit that, uh, especially with something hot out of the kiln, it is now covered with rug fibers, you know, and it makes a hell of a, a stink right. when it hit. Yeah. It, it makes a really bad smell when it hits that. Um, so what we do now is we put the rug down, um, over our good floor and then we put concrete backer board on top of that. So we just get a big sheet of that, that kind of, you put stuff on top of, or you put in the T zone where stuff is probably going to fall and it hits that stuff. No worries. You know, so, um, and concrete backer board, if people don't know what that is, that's what you would put up like in a shower, right. Or your bathroom as the backer behind oh, your, okay. yeah, it's the backer behind your tile and it's, it's mostly concrete. So. Waterproof and fireproof. Right. Nice and safe and portable. Yeah. yeah. And if something hits it, it's, you know, if you don't have the luxury of a concrete floor to work over, um, then you've got that. And jewelry is small enough that it's, it's comfortable inside. I, I know my students will often say, well, I have to set this up in the garage. And I'll, I'll say, well, let me tell you about all the different spaces I worked in when I was a bench jeweler. <laughs> worked on carpet. I worked on open, open brick floor, concrete, wood you know, linoleum, and it was all indoors. And, you know, it, jewelry is not necessarily an outdoor sport. You know, there's a lot of wind and stuff that happens. And you want right. like a, you want a controlled environment, you know, where you're working. And it's amazing um, how we adapt, you know, to whatever is available. And then it's just learning how to make it the best that you can, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pay attention to what goes wrong and see what you can do to fix that so that doesn't happen again. Um, you know, 
with everything, any craft, right? The important thing is to learn from the mistakes and to learn by fixing them. It makes you a better craftsperson to do that. Yeah, I totally agree. I started out in uh, crafts. Well, I grew up in the craft industry and then I worked in a publishing company where we took each step-by-step photo. We had to recreate another person's craft so that we could show how to make it. Wow. And um, I knew I had arrived when I could fix stuff, you know, (laughs) the things that that were broken or that maybe weren't explained quite clearly. You know, once you learn to fix mistakes, I think you're Mm. completely right. That's how you learn. Absolutely. That's That's so fascinating. Wow. And, you know, there's that strong, you did that for your job. And there was such a strong tradition of that still is to some extent. And even though it's kind of frowned upon, people think of it as copying, but artists used to always go and study the masters and you would sketch and, and the statues and the paintings and the artwork of the masters to learn and deconstruct what they did and then go back to try to make it yourself, you know, and you learn so much trying to make somebody else's work. You're, you can't make it unless you're as good as a forger, the same, but you can't make it right. <laughs> or amazing. You can't make it mm-hmm. the same. You know, you're going to have some difference there and that's, that's fine. You know, so I, my students will be like, should I copy this work? And I'll say you can for learning purposes uh, and don't peddle it as your own. But if you want to kind of study what somebody else is doing and try to figure it out on your own, you're going to learn some stuff. Yeah that's fine. Just be ethical about it. Right. Which I think can get a little tricky sometimes, you know, but I think you're right. There is a long tradition of working under someone else and doing what they do and really refining it until you can make it your own. Yes. The tradition of the apprentice, the journeyman, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, you look now, they, they openly show, you know, Leonardo da Vinci had a studio. There were plenty of people that did, um, did his work you know, for him. Uh, He started out like that. Uh, He did work for his master and they could trace out which of the, you know, the figures were his. And I think it's also fascinating that they look back and Michelangelo and Leonardo were both goldsmiths for a little while. Of course they were. (laughs) Of course they were. (laughs) The trades were so contained. There wasn't, there was limited knowledge, but these guys dabbled in everything and designed for, you know, jewelry as well as made it, you know, so I think that's amazing. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating. And again, to be part of that legacy is pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, I always ask everyone, um, what's your favorite stone? Can you tell us about it? Uh, it's, I just, I was laughing with a knot today because I, she said, uh, what are the questions like? I said, well, one of the questions is, what's your, <laughs> what's your favorite stone? I said, so what's your favorite stone? Because you know that I'm not a big stone guy. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one she likes is your favorite. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, I, I, again, lost wax. My, my thing was to carve and make figurative work and stuff like that. And so stones serve that purpose. You know, they were kind of part of that. Um, I wasn't necessarily making something stone dominant, but. Uh, as far as stones that I like out there and enjoy, um, uh, labradorite. I mean, you can't be, you can't beat that labradorescence on the surface. It's pretty amazing, and um, so pretty. Oh, so pretty. And then uh, tourmaline. That's another favorite because it just has such a wide range of color and gradation, and it's just kind of inspiring when you want to put it into something. Not to mention shapes. You know, you can kind of get it in. Um, so those would be my two favorites. Oh, those are great. I love I love those. Both of them have a lot of uh, variation, too. So anytime yeah. you see Labradorite or Tourmaline, they're 
they can be very different from the last set that you saw. You know, I think that that's interesting. Yeah, that each variability. one. So true. So true. Each one is unique, has its own character, and then that feeds into your inspiration for what you're going to make to to kind of work with that stone. Do you have a piece of jewelry that is your a standout for you that you've made? Um, I've got a, a sterling ring with a kind of a abstracted leaf pattern on the top in a kind of a saddle shape with a split shank that has a gold bezel uh, around a nice Ooh, piece pretty. of yeah around a nice piece of labradorite. Uh, that's pretty fun. Um, and of course, as soon as I make something stand out, it's usually on a knot's finger or she's wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's yeah. good. I'd be yeah. worried if she didn't. You know, that's right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's funny because we met at a show. We were both jewelers at this uh, open studio show in Oakland, and uh, we were the two jewelers at this location. And um, we met over jewelry, and then now we we've, we've got our lives wrapped around it, you know, thoroughly with the school and and what we love to do. It's always been in our our romance and in our relationship. It's a part of your fiber together, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you're doing this school and that you're able to keep rolling as an artist in business. It's really impressive. And I think we're going to have to get a knot here on the show one of these days. That would be a lot of fun. Yep. She can uh, share a lot about the school with that because it's been a big part of it. And um, we're really lucky that there's enough technology right now during this pandemic to um, to be able to to keep going online, You know, to be able to to come to people's home studios help them get set up at home and show them jewelry. And um, people are sometimes hesitant about doing this stuff online. And uh, what we've been finding that's amazing as teachers who've done this in person all the time is how relaxed the students are. We look at them. Interesting. Yeah, we come to the end of the class and usually that is the freak out zone. You know, you're coming to the end of the, the, the time. Uh, you know, you're going to have to leave. And, um, and they're like, I, no, I have to stay and finish because a lot of times they don't have access to the tools anymore. But I asked them about it and they said, well, you have to go, but we're still in our, here in our studio. <laughs> <laughs> and we have, yeah. ev- we have everything. We have everything we need. Right. So they're we can keep going. Up. Yeah. So see you later. We'll see you next time. But we're going to keep making jewelry at home. And it just, that makes us so happy. Oh, it's so inspiring. It's great. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, It's always great talking to you, Katie. It's been too long, and um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, a special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.